Welcome to the 351st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk about public health for transgender people and COVID-19 in India with Dr. Aksa Sheikh. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls at 7.30 p.m. Korea Time, 4 p.m. New Delhi Time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 4th, 2021, there are 4,801,304 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. India is reporting as of today, 448,817 deaths from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is an activist, a warrior, a mother to so many. Lorena Borjas, pillar of New York trans community, dies from coronavirus. This was written by Madeline Carlisle, published March 31st, 2020 in Time. Age 19 and incarcerated on Rikers Island, Biani Garcia and a friend, victims of a homophobic attack that had led to their arrests, Garcia says, needed help. They called Lorena Borjas, a pillar of New York City's Latinx LGBTQ community. Borjas had long been known as a staunch defender of the rights of trans people, Latinx people, and undocumented people and sex workers. Borjas helped Garcia and her friend obtain a lawyer who won their case and later helped them get immigration papers to stay in the U.S. A decade later, Garcia is now a justice worker with New York City-based advocacy organization Make the Road. Lorena was like a mother for many in the transgender community, Garcia tells Time. She used to help anyone. On Monday, March 30th, 2020, Borjas died from complications related to coronavirus, officials announced, a loss that rocked the trans community of Queens, New York, and beyond. She was 60, according to NBC New York. Lorena Borjas was a real hero for trans people, especially in Queens. She was a leader and a healer. Mara Kiesling, the executive director of the National Center for Transgender Equality, said in a statement, the NCTE family is saddened by her passing and has her broad family and the Queen's Latinx community in our hearts today. Borjas had been a prominent community organizer and health educator for decades, working to end human trafficking, which she herself survived, according to the Transgender Law Center. In 2017, she received a rare pardon from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo for a conviction she received in the 1990s while being trafficked, with Governor Cuomo praising her advocacy work in New York State. The conviction had put Borjas, a Mexican national, at high risk of deportation. 
Her community health work included an HIV testing site Warhaas set up in her own home and a syringe exchange program for trans women using hormone injections, according to Governor Andrew Cuomo's office. In 2012, she and activist Chase Strangio co-founded the Lorena Borjas Community Fund, which helped cover bail and pay legal fees for LGBTQ immigrants. Just a few weeks before her death, Borjas set up a fund for trans people who had lost their jobs to COVID-19, the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. Activists and community leaders across New York City took to social media after the news of her death broke. Lorena was honestly one of the most amazing women I've ever met. Lindley Igyes, the legal director of the Transgender Law Center, tells Time. She was an activist, a warrior, a mother to so many. Igyes, age 38, says she first met Borjas while working for the Sex Workers Project at the Urban Justice Center. At the time, Igyes remembers she was representing two incarcerated transgender women. Borjas just showed up with a much-needed birth certificate for one of the women pulling it out of the Mary Poppins roller bag she always carried with her. You never knew what was in there, Igyes laughed. Igyes later represented Borjas while campaigning for her pardon and says she received scores of letters during that time from people who said, Lorena literally saved my life. They told Igyes about times Borjas protected them from an abusive partner or took them into her home when they had nowhere else to go. That wasn't an uncommon story about Lorena, Igyes says. She would provide services and resources to anyone who just got to New York City and needed a hand or help, she continues. And she did this without pay. She just did it because it was the right thing to do. What I lived through helped me fight for justice for my sisters, Borjas said in a 2018 interview. My goal in life is to help them in everything I can. Christina Herrera the CEO and founder of the nonprofit Trans Latinx Network, describes Borjas as an outgoing and resourceful woman who was determined to make her visions come true. Over the 32 years the women knew each other, Herrera, 49, tells Time she watched Borjas grow into a respected and powerful community leader. She was a source of strength for many of us, Herrera adds. She's made the world, world better so selflessly, so humbly, without often any type of recognition, Igyes says. I think she taught everyone she knew about how to be a better person. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Dr. Aksa Sheikh. Dr. Aksa Sheikh is an out and proud trans woman. She is Associate Professor of Community Medicine, Nodal Officer for COVID Vaccination Center, Hamdard Institute of Medical Sciences and Research. Aksa is one of the investigators in a clinical trial of Sputnik V, investigator in TransCare Project and the WHO Unity Studies on COVID. She is co-investigator in transgender studies on health access and medical curriculum at Sangath, India. Aksa is also the founder, director of the Human Solidarity Foundation. Aksa Sheikh, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thanks, Scott. It's my, it's my pleasure to be here. I'd like to start the way I generally do, find out, first of all, where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Hi, everyone. I'm calling from Delhi. And uh, when it comes to the pandemic situation in India, right now we are in a phase of where we can say that we, are, we have like plateaued our numbers. You know? So we are getting roughly 
30,000 new cases every day, but uh, no peaks, fortunately, and uh, the death rates are also in control. And most importantly, uh, the resources are, you know, um, adequate to fight the current stage of pandemic. So uh, I, I know we'll talk more about this as well, but wh what's the vaccination picture looking like there right now? Yeah, right now, I mean, we are in a very good state of vaccination. So roughly uh, 90 crore people have been uh, vaccinated, 90 crore doses have been uh, given out and roughly uh, more than 50% of the population has received at least a dose of the vaccine. Uh, in most of the cities, like for example, in Delhi, uh, nearly 70 to 80% of the population have received at least a dose. Uh, in addition to the immunity which people have already had because of being exposed to the virus. So uh, the things look um, quite pretty good and the pace of vaccination is quite good. Uh, and we hope that the supplies uh, continue like this and we do not have a shortage of the vaccines uh, for, you know, in comparison to the demand that the population has right now. Do you feel like you can attribute that plateau in the case numbers to vaccination or is it too soon to connect those two things? I think uh, the plateauing is because we had the second wave in the month of April and May and a lot of uh, population immunity had developed and that coupled with a good pace of vaccination ensured that there were no peaks and there were no uh, new variants, you know, which appeared. So it's, it's partially our luck, partially good pace of vaccination and I would say the uh, development of the population immunity which is playing the role in current plateau. So I'd like to ask you if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory of this pandemic, a, a moment in time from this terrible period that really sticks in your memory. I think that has to be during the second wave uh, of the pandemic in the month of April and May, uh, when we had an acute shortage of oxygen all across India and especially in the state of Delhi where we were getting 25,000 cases per day as against the number of beds, you know, which were hardly available. And uh, there were scenes of, you know, people uh, literally dying on the streets, you know, people uh, trying to get a gasp of oxygen by any means possible. And um, there was no oxygen available. In fact, in my own hospital every day, you know, we used to have those tense moments that the oxygen can be cut off at any point of time. And around 70, 80 patients who are in critical need of oxygen could lose their lives. In my own neighboring hospital, one of the doctors was uh, the victim uh, of oxygen shortage and, and, and the amount of suffering, the mental suffering, the emotional suffering that people have had to go through that point of time. It's something that's going to remain in our memories uh, forever. I know, you know, just following on social media, it was almost hard to believe that, you know, doctors, people working in healthcare centers, putting out these calls literally on social media, calling for oxygen in a certain place. It was just startling to see. I can only imagine what that, that pace must have been like for you. So I myself uh, did that on Twitter. Uh, every day, you know, we were literally sending out SOS calls to the legislators, to MPs, to governments, to ensure that at least one tanker of liquid oxygen, you know, comes to a hospital and these patients who are on oxygen are safe. But then what is also important to understand is there were a lot of people who were not in hospital and were not that privileged and they died because of uh, the lack of oxygen at the homes, on the streets, in the ambulances. 
So those were really tragic times. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Aksa Sheikh today about the situation of COVID-19 in India. And I have so many questions to raise with you today, Aksa, but I'd like to first just maybe get a little bit of your life story and find out when you first got interested in health and medicine. Yeah, I think uh, I got interested in health and medicine right uh, in my childhood, you know. Uh, my mother used to remain quite sick and we used to often visit hospitals, clinics and a lot of uh, time in my childhood was spent in the hospitals and we didn't have any doctor in our family. So um, there was a lot of, you know, aspiration and uh, a lot of people looked uh, at me as a potential doctor in the family. And fortunately, I was good in academics, so I could get admission in a state-sponsored medical education seat and that's how the journey began. And so in your schooling, were you always one of these kids then who was good in biology and good in math and knew you were headed? Because I was never that that way. I guess from early on, I knew I would not succeed in, in something related to healthcare. Yeah, so I, I was equally good in both maths and biology. And therefore, there was, you know, always this puzzle whether I'll take engineering or whether I'll take medicine. But my heart was towards medicine. So that was the call. I see. And your family encouraged you in that? Uh, my family, uh, as I mentioned, you know, they uh, right from a childhood, they looked forward to me becoming a doctor. So that was the, a, a dream come true for them. I see. So, and you also identify as an out and proud trans woman. Tell us about that journey for you. Well, um, the journey of, you know, being a trans woman started with a lot of dilemma and confusion um, and lack of knowledge towards my own identity. So right from my childhood, ever since I can remember, I know that I did not identify as the male child, uh, you know, which I was raised as. Um, but at the same time, I was not very clear about my identity. I knew that I liked playing with girls. I knew that I liked dressing up like them and those kind of things. But the concept of a trans woman was not in our lingo. It was not in our vocabulary. And uh, the only media portrayal that we saw was that of effeminate gay men and those of the socio-ethnic groups in India that you call the hijra community. And I knew that I did not identify with both these identities. Then what was my identity? So it was a huge um, struggle to come to terms with my identity. And that happened during the third year of my medical school over here, when I met an endocrinologist and then later a mental health expert. And uh, through them explored my gender identity and sexual orientation and then came to terms uh, with being a trans person. But of course, all those years were very difficult because uh, not just I was suffering and trying to get my own identity, the world around me also did not understand me. And whatever people do not understand is either hated or, you know, teased or bullied. And uh, my, my entire childhood was spent as a very lonely child. You know, I, could, I did not have any friends. I was bullied. I was teased around. And um, also there was this internal struggle of trying to come to terms with your own identity. Uh, in between, I was also trying to change myself, you know, to try and become more manly and making that futile attempt of changing my gender identity, uh, because that's what the world told me, that you can change your gender identity, you know. So, and then there was another journey with my parents and with my family of them coming to terms with my gender identity and accepting that. So it, it has been a a lifetime of struggle, if I may say so. 
Thank you for being so open and in discussing that. And and just to follow up, I mean, medical school is hard enough, and so to take on that you know other aspect of defining yourself, you know, it it you're describing a situation where you came to rely, as you said, on an endocrinologist and a mental health expert at that time. Did you have anybody else in in your life or in your community that could help you? Could you could rely on? So, as you correctly mentioned, you know, medical school is a very difficult place to uh, pass through, and uh, I was in the best medical school of Western India. So, naturally, it was a very rat race, a very competitive environment, you know, where everyone was trying to excel. Uh, but at the same time, to add to that, I was a young trans person who's who was still struggling with the identity, who was having hypertension, was having depression at that point of time. and i didn't have anyone to speak to you know i didn't have friends who could understand me or i didn't know what to tell them you know because i myself was not very clear about it but even when i understood my gender identity i uh, came out to a few friends but then their attitude was let's not discuss about this you know they were very uncomfortable talking about an issue they didn't understand and our medical textbooks at that point of time uh, criminalized and pathologized homosexuality they also uh, kind of pathologized gender identity disorder as it was called at that point of time so it was like uh, telling people that i suffer from a mental illness uh, in addition to depression and uh, for which i am not responsible you know so so there was no one actually uh, to talk to at that point of time and nor were there any role models publicly available in india to whom you could look forward to and you know try and understand your life from the only thing that was available was media portrayal and those were very comic uh, characters you know which were part of the media portrayal i it's quite extraordinary what you're describing i mean you're you're being trained into a medical system that literally pathologizes you yeah i you know it, again i mean it, it, it takes it's, that's why that's why i consider that probably my life would have been easier had i not been in a medical school you know because well, Um, then you are in a with a group of doctors who look at you as a diseased person you know rather than just as a variation and that makes things worse what settled your mind that you'd continue um i i think uh, it was my dream of becoming a doctor and i had to do that uh, somehow um so it was like um, you know though i was working uh, as a medical student uh i was under immense amount of depression i was suffering from a lot of issues uh i had cut off from all kinds of social lives i did not even attend my convocation you know just to give an example but i i was a um, you know it's like dissociating your mind and your heart so um my brain as a medical student was working but my heart was not in that place so somehow i scraped through some i managed to become a doctor but then i don't really look back to those days in medical school and relish those memories maybe you can you know out, sort of lay out the picture for our audience a little bit who may not be as familiar you know what is the situation today for transgender people in india is there representation is it is there more acceptance than there was at the time that that you were you know coming out in that identity uh well the biggest thing that has happened in the past few years with reference to the trans situation in india is that we have a law now in place uh, we have a transgender persons protection of rights act which was enacted a couple of years back 
uh, which talks about the educational empowerment of trans persons, which speaks about rights of trans persons at the place of employment and in the healthcare. Now, while we have a law in place and, uh, you know, the government is trying to do something, on ground, I would say the situation still hasn't changed. So you do still have the socio-ethnic groups of uh, Hijra and the Kinnar community who do not uh, uh, get the opportunities to complete school education, who do not get uh, into formal sectors of occupation, who still rely on begging sex work as their traditional professions and are therefore exposed to a huge risk of communicable and non-communicable diseases. And the same was only visible during the pandemic, you know, when their risk to the COVID-19 was um, much higher as compared to the other individuals. Or even during the vaccination drive, when we saw that the access to vaccination by this community was very less as compared to the cisgender population. So uh, while there is a law in place, its on-ground implementation is missing. And that is why the life of an ordinary transgender person hasn't changed at all. But then what we also see as a positive and optimistic thing is that those young trans people who are now coming out have now more family support. The parents are more understanding of the trans issues. They are lending a supportive hand and young people are transitioning uh, earlier. And we know that transitioning earlier can be a matter of life and death. It can significantly reduce gender dysphoria. It can significantly reduce your suicidal attempts and ideation. And that's a good thing which is happening now. Is there an international trans community that young people can rely on? Young people in India or maybe yourself have relied upon for solidarity? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest uh, advantage that the young people now have is social media. You have Instagram, you have Facebook, Twitter, and you have a lot of uh, international communities. You have a lot of young uh, communities within India themselves, you know, and solidarity groups and um, you know role models that you can look forward to uh, and and feel that it does get better you know at the end of the day uh, which we didn't have at our point of time maybe 15 20 years back when i was coming out so that's a great advantage uh, that the community has in post covid when everyone has now come online uh, with more you know uh, insta lives and facebook lives and all uh, the support networks have only grown uh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. But of course, the acceleration of online life, which has been caused by the pandemic, you're describing maybe has even accelerated uh, acceptance and solidarity for young people who may be uh, coming out as transgender. Yeah, it has definitely created more avenues to speak to, to listen to and to coordinate. Interesting. So, well, let, you mentioned, um, you know, the healthcare concerns for the trans community. And I want to go into great detail about that. I just want to read, there was a great um, interview that you did in uh, Outlook India back in March. And I'm going to read just a quote from that. It's a nice Q&A with you. And I'll put the link up um, for anybody who wants to see it on Twitter. But um, you describe the experience of uh, trans people going to the hospital. You say the very act of entering a hospital, going past security, the reception, and visiting the vaccination center using the washrooms in the facility will be a daunting task. So even though there is no scope for discrimination in the vaccination program, so here we're getting ahead a little bit talking about vaccination, our entire healthcare system is designed in such a way that it is inaccessible to most trans people. I'd like you to expand on that if you could. Yeah, so when we speak about, uh, you know, institutions of healthcare provision, like clinics, hospitals, vaccination centers, primary healthcare centers, 
these are the places where uh, you know uh, the trans and intersex people have traumatic memories the intersex people for example have had sex normalizing surgeries performed in these same hospitals against their wishes which uh, you know um, considered their bodies as pieces for doing experiments uh, when it comes to the trans persons when it comes to the lgb population the hospitals and the psychiatric clinics especially have been the places where convergent therapy has been practiced on them where the trained physicians and mental health experts have tried to change their sexual orientation and gender identity these are the places where even when they've gone for a simple uh, condition like fever they have been misunderstood they have been mistreated and they have not been accepted for who they are they have their pronouns have been uh, said wrongly uh, there has been more curiosity into what kind of genitals they have there has been more curiosity into what is their sex life like rather than you know uh, considering them as a human being who is in need of healthcare so these are those places you know which have not understood them which have not accepted them and which have not treated them as they ought to be treated and that is why um, going back to these places now for covid diagnostic treatment of a vaccination can be a harrowing experience for a trans or an intersex person so when the pandemic first started then what kind of measures did you feel you were going to need to take what kinds of things were you concerned about worried about and expressing to people that you know, members of the trans community were going to need in terms of overcoming this history that you were just describing so they could get help um see when the pandemic started uh, in early 2020 uh, no one had a clue as to what it is exactly for how long it's going on and you know how we are going to come out of this we just all thought that it's only a matter of few weeks and things are going to settle and we'll be back to business now the trans community suffered a lot in two folds over here one was the traditional occupations of begging and sex work were completely stopped uh, and therefore you know their livelihood suffered and there was no livelihood support provided by the government at that point of time so whatever uh, they had to scrape through their savings and whatever they had second is that a lot of trans people do not stay with their biological natal families they stay with friends they stay with allies or they stay uh, in these, um, you know, traditional houses where other trans people are staying. And most of them are rented premises. And during the um, pandemic, early on, a lot of discrimination was targeted against the trans persons. They were even called super spreaders by some group of people. There were posters uh, put up in some parts of southern India where they were called as the spreaders of the disease. And that ensured that the landlords, you know, did not rent out the premises or they were evicted from their premises and had to go back to their natal families. And these natal families are the same families, violent families from which they had once escaped. So it was very difficult for the trans community to deal with the pandemic, one, because they didn't have a safe space to stay in. And secondly, they did not have an occupation or an employment by which they could earn their living. In such circumstances, you know, people become extremely vulnerable uh, and we had seen a lot of conversion therapy happening. We had seen corrective rapes happening. We had seen uh, physical and sexual violence increasing. And that was only seen in terms of the number of panic calls uh, that the community um, started giving out to the helplines. 
so it was a very difficult situation at that point of time somehow the community supported each other the uh, allies supported the community there was philanthropy which then poured in later on and that's how the community was able to manage do you have any numbers to try to make sense of the scale of this I and mean, what you're describing is a i mean a pandemic which is bad enough and then a community of people who have nowhere to go. I mean, you're describing their livelihood is cut off, the places where they live in many cases are closed down and they can't return, as you said, maybe to their to their family group because that's the side of violence that they had left previously. How do you track such things? Uh, it's very difficult to track, you know, because um, these are all, all unofficial, uncounted numbers. If you ask me to put a number to it, the official trans population in India is 5 million. You know, that's the population of a small country. And uh, that's highly undercounted number. The actual number of trans people in India would be many folds higher than that. And these are the people. And when we speak about pandemic and the suffering, it's not only trans people. It's also the other queer communities like the lesbian, gay, bisexual, agender, asexual communities, which have also suffered. So if we put that around 5% of the India's population is queer, uh, then you can understand that what a huge amount of population we are speaking about. I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a staggering number. And to have it be a sort of a, a missing figure or somehow a, a group that doesn't have advocacy, yeah. uh, or maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, were there legislators or people you obviously, but others who stepped up in that moment and and spoke out? Uh, well, yes, the community fortunately has some outspoken uh, allies, and it has community members who are outspoken. But when it comes to the representation of the community in the media, in the legislation, uh, legislature, or in any of those representative bodies, it's zero. You know, so we do not, for example, have any news anchor who is a trans identifying person. We do not have a single member of the parliament or member of legislative assembly who is trans identifying. So in terms of numbers, we have a good amount of number. But when it comes to the representation in the uh, vocal bodies and places where decisions are making, the representation is extremely poor. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Dr. Aksa Sheikh, who's the Associate Professor of Community Medicine and the Nodal Officer for COVID Vaccination Center in the Hamdard Institute of Medical Sciences and Research in New Delhi. Um, I'm very eager to hear about what that clinic is like. I mean, first of all, what your conversations must have been like with colleagues, given your experience and your special knowledge about the LGBTQ community, what kind of provisions you made early on in the pandemic to serve that community, but also just what a day in the life of the clinic has been like through the pandemic? Um, well, uh, in January 2021, we started with our uh, vaccination center, and uh, we are proud to say that this is a trans-friendly, queer-friendly, queer-affirmative vaccination center, which made provisions that 
all kinds of persons including persons with disabilities and uh, persons with varying sexual orientation or gender identity could find a place over here and uh, me being uh, over there and me being the only uh, covid uh, nodal officer of a vaccination center who identifies as a trans in the country uh, ensured that you know we could put in place some measures and provisions to uh, make it a place where trans people can come forward and get the vaccination the biggest hurdle that we faced was in terms of vaccine hesitancy within the trans community so while there were provisions for getting the vaccination the community found it very difficult to come forward and get vaccination because certain questions are unanswered like for example is the vaccine tested in the trans community and if it is tested in the trans community then what kind of adverse events have been seen and the answer was no it has not been tested in the trans community because it's a vulnerable community when it comes to clinical trials and we also know that a lot of trans people are on hormone replacement therapy some of them are persons living with hiv and are on antiretroviral therapy some of them have tuberculosis and are on anti tuberculosis treatment and we do not know what kind of interaction the vaccine had with these kind of treatments so there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy and even when the answers were present the community didn't come forward because as you must have heard that india's vaccination campaign is linked with the digital app called covin app and that requires some kind of a photo identity card and a lot of trans people do not have this photo identity card which mentions their correct name and gender and they did not want to go and get a vaccination certificate on their dead name or on their wrong gender so they said okay we'll wait for it or we'll you know not get a vaccine we'll be protected as we have been protected so far so that was another barrier that we noticed in the uh, clinic vaccination clinic uh but slowly and steadily now more and more trans people are coming forward and getting the vaccination uh but still a lot needs to be done i i just want to take those one by one cuz they're each formidable the um hormonal therapy for example um there was concern um that there might be some interaction with the vaccine and um hormone therapy yeah because uh, there were issues around clotting and uh, you know thrombosis especially with the covishield vaccine which is the main vaccine that is being administered in india and we also know that the women on hormone replacement therapy or the trans persons on hormone replacement therapy have a higher risk of thrombosis and therefore there was a plausible um, you know hypothesis that probably covishield is going to cause more thrombosis in trans persons who are on hormone replacement therapy so uh, there were those fears and we did not have any uh, clinical data available to either say that it does not cause thrombosis or any additional risk of thrombosis in trans persons so um, and and in the time of social media you know in the times of misinformation these kind of rumors spread very fast and um, you had people dying of vaccination um and then everyone said oh people are dying of vaccination you know and mm-hmm. the proper afi investigation was not done into them and then it it spreads like rumor that there is a rumor that everyone who gets vaccine dies you know or right. some of them die and that's enough to stop the trans people from going and getting vaccination and then the hiv uh, positive community as well uh, there were no clinical trials i guess done with that and that's of course these are issues that are not just india i mean these are global issues yes. um these so same kind of concern among that among that subpopulation 
Yeah, so the immunodeficient group was in fact one of the priority groups for getting the vaccination. But uh, right. you know, we need to understand that these are the people who are fighting life and death. And for them, all these decisions of taking a vaccine, even though it's not a live vaccine, are important. Hmm. And and then the third one that you mentioned, which I wasn't aware of in India. So there's a um, an online tracking system, I guess, a government tracking system. So say a little bit more because I haven't heard too much about that that system. How has that been implemented and what, what are the concerns among trans people that that would be difficult for them to navigate? Right. So uh, in India, we have the COVID application, which is a digital backbone for the vaccination process. <coughs> so people have to get a registration done online through the mobile phones uh, and book a slot for the vaccination. And once that they done, then they go to a vaccination center where through the COVID application, uh, their photo verification is done. And this is done to ensure that one person is not vaccinated double or the correct vaccination goes to the correct person. But the problem is that the digital penetration in a country like India is poor. And not everyone has access to mobile phones and internet telephony. Not everyone has access to these apps, for example. And that ensured that at least in the start of the vaccination drive, a certain portion of the digitally naive population was left out of the vaccination race. And uh, even in the rural areas, we saw that the slots were booked by the urban folks, you know, who would go to the rural areas to get the vaccines during those slots. Now, the trans community is someone which is highly underprivileged when it comes to education, employment or access to digital uh, sources. And therefore, they also lack behind in vaccination. And uh, secondly, as I mentioned, that the entire process is linked with the national identification card called Aadhaar. Uh, and most of the trans people could not get their name and gender changed in this Aadhaar card. And they did not want the vaccination certificate also in the same dead name or wrong gender. So in many cases, these are people who are in the middle of a process of somehow changing their name and their gender in that system or or can that even be done at this point in the national identity system uh so now that's the tricky situation that during the pandemic the process of name and gender changing came to a halt and therefore oh, really? uh, people were not able to do that process and secondly is that as i mentioned there is a new law uh, in india for the trans persons which also talks about the rules of changing the name and gender and since that's not implemented on ground Again, the process of uh, changing the name and gender has come to a grinding halt. So it exists as a law in the books, but in terms of actually getting yes. it done. It's well, very difficult to get it done on ground. And, and so, I mean, we're, we're well into this pandemic now. How many months? I've forgotten. Gosh. Uh, so, but no progress in, I mean, is this just now not going to change? I mean, it's just uh, it's not open. priority. Uh, it's not a priority for the government, naturally, now. And uh, it's a very minuscule population, you know, when you come to the trans people who are trying to, trying to change the name or gender at any given point of time. And therefore, there is uh, no demand, there is there are no protests happening, and it's not a priority for the government, too. So, coming back to the... Um, you seem to indicate you had made some headway in terms of vaccine hesitancy. Tell me a little bit about your pitch. How, how do you overcome these concerns? You know, this is something in the United States, for example, um, where one thing I'm astounded by always is by people in public health, people in medicine, they're, they never give up. It, you know, if someone's hesitant, 
they come with more data. Someone's hesitant, they listen. Someone's hesitant. I know they have their frustrations, I'm sure, and they tell their colleagues about that. But they don't give up in terms of making their pitch because if one more person gets vaccinated, that's one less case there's going to be. How do you approach it? Uh, I think the first and foremost thing was uh, setting yourself as an example. So I was the first transgender person in the country to get vaccine on the first day on which the vaccination was launched. So I and I'm also on hormone replacement therapy myself. So I was an example to other trans folks that if I can have the trust in the vaccines and get vaccinated and I'm safe and alive, you know, after months of taking vaccination, then naturally you can also do that. Secondly, I also come from the Muslim community, which is the religious minority group here and which also has a lot of vaccine hesitancy. And uh, being from the same community and advocating for the vaccines has ensured that the message uh, has reached the community. Uh, the third important point is, I think, speaking to the people in the language they understand. Unfortunately, most of the vaccine communication has been in uh, English or it has been in Hindi, uh, which is the most... Uh, spoken language in India. But unfortunately, when it comes to a lot of religious minorities, it's the languages are different, you know, so uh, we did a lot of videos and talks in local languages in the languages that the trans and the uh, Muslim community, for example, understands. Uh, fourth and very important thing which we have understood is that, you know, if you can't uh, conquer something, you should join it. And when I speak about that, that's the social media. So social media is our enemy as well as our friend. So uh, the social media was the tool through which a lot of misinformation and rumors were spreading. And we decided to take on the social media and use it to our advantage and, you know, create those small videos, interviews and so on to uh, spread the message about vaccination. And our work was made easier by the second wave when in almost every family, unfortunately, someone lost an year and year one. And they realized that people who had taken vaccine were protected or did not uh, get a very severe infection as compared to those who were unvaccinated. So there were live examples in front of them. And that also helped in, uh, you know, taking care of the vaccine hesitancy. Well, that's a lot of different strategies there. Um, just to follow up on one of those, how do you explain the hesitation in the Muslim community in India? I'm sure it's many reasons, but can you characterize that? I think we need to look at it a little historically, you know, uh, historically, there has been a lack of faith by the Muslim community in the government initiatives. So we had the forced vasectomies happening previously. Uh, then we had the polio vaccination campaign. And there were doubts whether this polio vaccine has something to decrease the population of the Muslim community. And the same thing now happened with the COVID vaccination. At the start of the pandemic, the Muslim community was called the super spreader. We had seen the Tablighi Jamaat event, you know, and how uh, that was targeted and how there was an uh, economic boycott of the Muslims, which happened because of that. And as a result of all those factors, the trust in the vaccine, the trust in the vaccination process was less. Also, very importantly, uh, the linkage of the vaccination process with the Aadhaar card or the national identification cards and uh, this happening amidst the protest to the uh, NRC and the CAA uh, acts in India, uh, which speak about a national register of citizens. So there were these fears that, you know, this is probably a backstage process to look at the citizenship and the residency uh, through the documents. So all of these factors ensured that there was hesitancy 
but fortunately with time that's gone now we have involved the religious leaders we have involved the community and especially the women from the community uh, to get the message through and you shared that you were the first transgender woman in india to be vaccinated with the covid vaccine yeah, um, yeah that's talk 16th. about that so uh, i have been the nodal officer of the covid vaccination center and as you know that the healthcare workers were in the first round of vaccination so fortunately i had my name on the first date self and therefore uh, i became the first trans person also in india to get the vaccine i just my own experience i'm in south korea now and um, you know we had to wait quite some time here south korea has really caught up i think almost 80% now uh, south korea has had one dose of people who are eligible so it's gone from a very low um availability to a very high uptake which is what you'd expect South Korea the United States is quite different but it was so vivid for me I'm not a healthcare worker I'm I'm just a social scientist but I talk about covid every day and it was very emotional for me I have to say to be in that space to see the healthcare workers after getting the shot and waiting I don't know what it was like for you that 15 minutes was a out of body kind of experience for me just sitting there thinking wow this is this has happened um and i'll be going back for my second one next week okay what was it like for you uh well it was very surreal if i may say so you know uh because um, uh before that for almost 8 months we had been fighting this pandemic and we had been fighting it hopelessly uh i had myself got covid in september 2020 i had to spend 10 days in the hospital and those tenders were very harrowing you know uh, because you had those constant anxieties are you going to come out of it safely are you going to die what will happen to your family members will they even get to see you or not you know those kind of worries um we were experimenting with drugs we were not able to get any drug you know which worked on covid and there was this constant anxiety and in all of that finally there was this ray of hope in the form of vaccines and a developing country like india manufacturing its own vaccine getting it out so fast and especially for the healthcare workers and you being uh, you know the person getting it first and not just getting it first but also becoming a nodal officer of the vaccination center and therefore facilitating that process for thousands of people you know being an agent of hope for thousands of people so that was uh, really very surreal important point that I should say I'm glad you're okay and I'm sorry that you were in the hospital and it's um it's doubly important that getting vaccinated after having covid is also a strong statement right I mean it's yeah. it's a statement that because we don't really well I'm not up to date on the data but um it's not clear that people who've had it can't have a reinfection so it's important that the vaccine um be taken by everyone who's eligible for it is that right yeah uh, absolutely because you know um, of course we don't have the complete data and there will be always ifs and buts present uh, but then i think uh, we need to listen to the scientists and we need to go with whatever data we have available and have a little faith uh, in medicine i mean there were a lot of hoax calls and there were a lot of uh, rumors you know saying that how can they uh, invent a vaccine so fast i mean it has never happened in the history of mankind or whether this vaccine really works and especially vaccines made in developing countries like india and in china or are they inferior to pfizer and moderna vaccines so all those kind of questions were there but i think uh, we are all wiser in the hindsight and uh, taking vaccine was one of the best decisions 
Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking with Dr. Aksa Sheikh about COVID-19 in India and also the experience of transgender people and COVID. And um, as is coming clear in our conversation, you're a community builder. And I wanted to ask you about a couple of the organizations that you founded or that you're participating in. One is the Human Solidarity Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Human Solidarity Foundation was created through adversity. You know, this happened when there were Delhi riots uh, happening uh, between the Hindus and the Muslim communities. And uh, no one was allowed to venture into those areas, but we being the medicos were allowed entry. And we use that as an opportunity to enter those areas and to provide the first aid, to provide food relief to those people. And while we were doing that work as a collective and, you know, trying to uh, rehabilitate those victims, nearly uh, hundreds of families. Uh, in March 2020, the COVID wave came and knocked on our doors and nationwide lockdown was announced at the end of March. And uh, a millions of migrants you know started walking bare feet from the cities like delhi towards their native places many of them died walking many of them died on the way because of various reasons and that was the time when human solidarity foundation you know came into its full force and uh, started providing food relief and uh, some kind of you know financial support so that they can pay their rents and stay in the cities till the lockdown is lifted and we were really, um, you know, completely awed by the amount of response that people gave us. So we were supplied with a lot of resources that we could use and, uh, you know, serve thousands and thousands of families. Uh, but another important contribution of Human Solidarity Foundation was during the second wave of the pandemic. Um, when our healthcare systems were completely flooded, we did not have beds or doctors or oxygen available. And at that time, we started with a medical helpline so that people who were in home isolation could speak to a qualified doctor, uh, could get a prescription of drugs and could start even oxygen therapy at home and a 24 by 7 support was provided. And this was all done voluntarily by the doctors. We had more than 50 young medicos from India handling these COVID calls. We had nearly 50 doctors from US, UK, Canada and Australia who are providing the expert support and their experience of having dealt with the COVID waves. And through that, we um, uh, treated some 2,000 to 3,000 patients wow. through the home isolation. And uh, that was immensely uh, satisfying thing that we could achieve. I can imagine it. it um, just going back to that first part of what you're describing, I, I guess it's received a lot of, of uh, media attention but I feel like that lockdown and that mass movement of people is one, it's going to take a long time to understand the implications of that. I, I don't know how, I mean, you know, the, the results of that, I mean, do we have a sort of a sense of how many people were injured and, and died and died along the way in, in that? I mean, the scale of it is just so enormous. Yeah, unfortunately, the question was asked in Parliament in India and the government said it did not have data on how many migrants have died walking home. So that's the sad part. We do not have data on that. Mm. Another project that you're engaged in is the uh, TransCare project. I wonder if you could describe that a little bit. 
Yeah, so this is a project which is uh, uh, looking at how the transgender people have been able to or have not been able to access healthcare, uh, especially in the COVID pandemic times and how that has impacted their mental health. So we are doing a qualitative research there and doing focus group discussions, in-depth interviews with the trans community members across various intersections in India and trying to identify how they navigate the healthcare system during the pandemic. And um, we are near the closure of that project and the insights from that have been extremely useful, extremely helpful in devising uh, strategies for providing trans-affirmative healthcare. Another project that we are doing is uh, called Transcare Medit, which is funded by University of Chicago. And um, it basically looks at um, the medical curriculum, existing medical curriculum, which has been repeatedly called out for being queerphobic, for being transphobic, and how we can reform that medical curriculum to make it trans-affirmative and queer-affirmative. And it again involves a lot of uh, conversations with the community members, with physicians who provide services to the trans community, uh, with medical educators, and also some of the trans persons who are themselves healthcare providers. So again, a very uh, interesting project there. Thanks for going in detail on both those projects. I mean, it, it, you're describing earlier sort of points of optimism, which I think we're all desperate for in, in these times. And so points of optimism with the pandemic and also uh, for the transgender community. Um, you know, I want to come back to this interview that you gave uh, in Outlook India. And, you know, one of the things that you said there, which really struck me, was that, um, you know, that there's a lot of firsts. You participated in a lot of firsts. I'm just going to give a quote from this. You said, just because we're a member of the trans community, there are a lot of firsts we're lauded for, like, for instance, first trans doctor or the first trans researcher and so on to think that this is still the case in 2021, the fact that we still have these firsts to hand out is very telling of our society and how it's restricted the trans community from becoming part of the mainstream. Having said that, I don't want to be the last. I, I was really struck by that be, because the pressure on you with these firsts is immense, but also the, the pressure to build community is, is there too. And I, we're talking about the various different ways that you do it, but I don't know how to, I don't even have a question to say. You might, how do you keep from being tired? How do you, how do you, how do you keep doing this work and stay so motivated to do it? Because it, it just seems like, um, I, I just want to comment on that. And I guess yeah. I sort of ask you to, you know, just. So um, I think, uh, you know, when you run out of all the options, the only option is to survive. And uh, for us, initially, uh, especially in the early years of our medical college and uh, early years of profession, it was surviving the storm. You know, it was surviving the hate around us. It was surviving the lack of acceptance. It was surviving our families, uh, you know, who can be um, non-accepting of our identities. Uh, but once you have crossed that, you know, once you have been um, able to move uh, beyond that, um, then your simple existence itself can become a you know a source of motivation for the trans persons who are in closet they have a role model now in the form of dr aksa sheikh and they say that okay if she can become a doctor if she can become a nodal officer a sputnik vaccine trial investigator then you know i can at least get a basic school education or a college education and get a decent job 
and um, i also come from multiple minorities i am also come from the religious minority for example and uh, it makes it even doubly difficult you know to uh, exert my identity which are often at the opposite ends of each other so it's it's difficult and frankly there not all days i am uh, you know smiling or doing my job with so much of motivation uh, there have been days i have been through depression i have been through my own mental health issues but at the end of the day you you are on your own and you have to survive and you have to do it for yourself you know and in the process if you can make the life easier for some other trans folks for some other queer folks then that's the cherry on the top almost up on time in my conversation with Dr. Aksa Sheikh I wanted to ask you about the future so um quite specific you know you're just talking about some of the changes you'd like to see in medical education and I think that's that's around the world there in india um what kind of changes are you looking for at any level of government um that will make more opportunities for trans people in india i think uh, we are fortunate that we have a law now in place and the law is um, good in the spirit you know uh, what we need is the law to be implemented uh, on ground and that's where our advocacy efforts are focused on right now to ensure that whatever the provisions are there in the acts we ask the governments the responsible governments to ensure that those provisions are enacted and um, education employment and health uh, becomes a reality for the trans persons uh, and so that they are able to live their life with dignity you know it's uh, we are near the end and i just want to end by saying this that the suicide rate in the trans persons is five times higher than a cisgender person as cisgender society we need to introspect what are we doing that trans people are forced to kill themselves and how we can change that so if we can go all you know with that thought as to how we can change so that the trans people survive they don't take their own lives then i think we will we would have done something good just want to remind everyone that you've been listening to covid calls and you can usually catch covid calls live at 6 p.m. eastern time this has been a special covid calls episode at 7:30 p.m. korea time 4 p.m. new delhi time and i want to thank my extraordinary guest dr aksa sheik for this illuminating hour and i hope we get a chance to have you back um and that things continue on the right path in your clinic and there in new delhi we don't want to see anything like what we saw uh last summer um it's been an honor to speak with you i learned a lot thank you so much dr shake thanks god it's a, it's a real pleasure you know to speak on such diverse issues and uh, to speak to uh, about them in such depth so really a pleasure for me Stay healthy everyone we'll see you next time on covid calls mm-hmm.